Appreciate you being here. And uh, I saw on the weather, trust it as you may, that we only have one more really hot day before we're going to cool off. And then we're going to have some torrential downpours. And then we're going to get hot again. But not for long, so it's okay. It's all right. And you know, I told you this, but I just try not to complain. I just take it in stride. If it's hot out there, if it's 100 degrees out there, the humidity may be, on a hot day, may be as high as 30%. And oh my, we complain. And then we talk to my daughter, who is about 95 degrees and 105% humidity. <laughs> and she says, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> so this is so much better. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you for being here on a Wednesday night. I appreciate it. I appreciate your desire to study God's Word. As, um, as I spend time every week, and it takes me quite a bit of time to put these studies together, but what I have the opportunity to do is to marinate in this. And so for us, we spend, what, an hour together, if that, and uh, we rush through a chapter or two, and I have had the privilege of spending most of a day, if not longer, on this and just just eating it up. And so uh, what you have is the overflow from the blessed studies that I've had. Tonight we're going to be in Isaiah 56, and Lord willing, 57 as well. And so let me read for you Isaiah 56. I'm going to read the first verse, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into tonight's lesson. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment, and do justice. For my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. If you're taking notes, Roman number one is preparations for the Messiah's return. Preparations for the Messiah's return. And then letter A, instructions from God to prepare for the Messiah. And let's pray. I thank you, dear Lord, for your love, goodness, faithfulness, mercy, the grace that you bestowed upon us today. I thank you for the opportunity we have tonight to open your word and to study it. And Lord, I would ask for your spirit to guide us tonight and to give to us your truth. And Lord, may this not just be an intellectual exercise, but may this be a softening of our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you'll be glorified in it through it, and we'll thank you for it. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter, chapter 56, begins a four-chapter section of instructions for God's people, giving them directives how to live their lives pleasing to the Lord. If I were to give you a pop quiz right now, I'd say, take out a piece of paper. Uh, question number one, what do you have to do to please the Lord? I don't need you to answer now, but what would you answer? What are some of the things that we know please the Lord? Well, these, these are, this is the beginning of four chapters to Old Testament uh, believers. And so let's find out what they have to say. The Lord began by commanding them to remember to be fair and just in all their dealings. They are also to do 
justice. And this gives the thought of always living righteously in all their ways. The word justice here means righteousness. God's instructions were given with a specific purpose in mind. He told them that His salvation was near when His righteousness would be revealed. And of course, this was a look to the Messiah. His people were to prepare the way for the Messiah, a command sadly they dismally failed to keep. In Psalm 24, verses 4 and 5, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Verse number 2, Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Letter B, God includes rewards for obedience. He attached a reward for obedience to his commands. He would bless any of his people who heeded his commandments and stayed away from evil. Proverbs 16, 6, By mercy and truth iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the Lord men depart from evil. Verse 3, Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Letter C, God sought to encourage some who were not feeling welcome. When I was uh, elementary school, I remember it was a pretty good sized school, and I remember both experiencing it and seeing how cruel elementary students can be. Look at it, cruel. They don't comprehend the severity of the words they speak. I remember getting called names. I was sadly overweight. I get called all sorts of names. And I knew how that hurt. But I also understood how it hurt others when they were, would be called names. I remember going out for recess or for a P.E., and I remember how they'd divide up into two teams. I remember they'd call captains. They'd be a captain. That captain's job was to, to call people out one at a time for their team. That sounds fairly innocent until you got down to the last two or three on each side that were not called. And uh, because I was in that position a time or two, I know the feeling. And I've always felt bad for those last ones to be called because they were not wanted and they understood they were not wanted. And that's what the topic is here. During their captivity, there were some Gentiles who actually became proselytes to Judaism and Jehovah worship. To that group, God encouraged to remain faithful as he counted them members to his family. And you can't begin to imagine how much a Gentile would feel as an outcast in a Jewish environment. To the eunuch, God would similarly seek to encourage. Eunuchs were mostly relegated to serve in the palace in Babylon during those 70 years of judgment in various positions. Some were instrumental in affairs of business and astronomy. 
familiar names like Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The term eunuch can also refer to men who have not had children. Such a condition was actually shameful in Isaiah's day, and God sought to encourage them as well. And I love that concept. Though some are outcast by man, that doesn't mean they're outcast by God. In 2 Kings 20 and verse 18, And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Verse 4 and 5, For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house within my walls a place, and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Letter D, God sought to reassure faithful eunuchs. The law of Moses made it unlawful for eunuchs to be a part of the congregation of Israel. And that's found in Deuteronomy 23 and verse 1. The captivity caused eunuchs to freely intermingle among the other Israelites. For their 70 years in Babylon, they lost their, privilege, or their previous stigma. God spoke to them here to reassure them that His concern was the condition of their hearts. He described the blessing to those who remained faithful to him. Apparently, eunuchs were a little nervous. The end of the 70 years' judgment was starting to wane, and it was about time for them to go back to Jerusalem. What's it going to be when they reestablish the strict law of Moses, they're saying? Before, before, we were outcasts. We could not be part of the congregation due to no fault of our own. But now, for 70 years... They've been part of the Jewish family because of the pressures, because they're POWs now. They were intermingling. And so they feared going back. So God came to them and comforted them and said, I'm concerned about your heart, not your physical liabilities. Verse 6. Also the sons of the stranger that joined themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants, every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Letter E. The uh, sons of the stranger refer to Gentile converts. Gentile converts were also encouraged by the Lord. As with the eunuchs, God encouraged Gentiles who had been converted to Jehovah worship, to those whose hearts remained faithful to God and honored His commandments. He promised to accept as one of His own. The full exercise of their privileges may not come until the millennium. God made it clear that the spiritual exercise of prayer was very important to maintaining a proper relationship with Him. The Millennial Temple will be open for prayers of Jews and Gentiles alike. Matthew 21, 13, And said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And of course, that's when He cast out the money changers. 
Verse 8, The Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet will I gather others to him, besides those that are gathered unto him. Letter F, God will gather all of his outcasts in that day. I think Jesus understood what it meant to be an outcast. His entire nation rejected him. And so he's got a very special place in his heart for those who are outcasts. In Isaiah's day, both eunuchs and Gentiles were considered outcasts. God was clearly expressing his feelings about the many of them who would give their hearts to him, to whom God would graciously receive. Along with these outcasts, the Lord may have had the New Testament church in mind as well. It's been similarly considered outcast by the whole Jewish nation. In the millennium, there will be a grand uniting, however, of all of God's people. And that truth found in, in uh, Ephesians of two into one will finally make sense in the millennium. 1 Corinthians 4.13, being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of the things unto this day. Roman numeral 2. God turns his attention back to the judgment of his people. I hope, I hope you've enjoyed these uh, eight verses. Just, just take a moment and breathe in the sunshine of the eight verses. They've been glorious because <laughs> we're going downhill fast. Verse 9, all ye beasts of the field come to devour. Yea, all ye beasts in the forest. An abrupt change of scene is introduced by this verse. It's likely that God here directs his message back to those living in Isaiah's day. So we've gone from being in the millennium back to, can I say reality? Back to Isaiah's day. So in Isaiah's day, they were living in significant prosperity. Assyria was getting ready to attack. And they were shrugging it off, thinking it wasn't a big deal and they were not listening to the prophets, and they were living horrible lives, idolatrous, wicked lives. In, uh, they were living in false confidence before the actual invasion and destruction of the Babylonians. In this verse, God describes his call to the heathen nations to come and devour his people as judgment for their wickedness and idolatry. Deuteronomy 28, 25 and following, The Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies. Thou shalt go out one way against them, and flee seven ways before them, and shalt be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And thy carcass shall be meat under the fowls of the air, and under the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. And of course, that's a look to the immediate judgments of Assyria and Babylon, and also a future look to Armageddon. Letter A, Israel's spiritual leadership had failed. Verse 10, his watchmen are blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving the slumber. The spiritual leaders of the nation had abdicated their responsibilities and had become just as wicked, if not more so, than the idolatrous people around them. They had become blind spiritually. 
and worthless as protective guards for the nation. Can you imagine? You put the guards on the wall to look out for the enemy coming, but the guards you put up there can't see. They're blind. And that's what's being described here. They had grown lazy and resentful toward the law and toward their God. Hosea 4, 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. Verse 11, Yea, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough. And they're shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his gain from his quarter. Number one, their leaders were only serving themselves. Interested in one thing, me. They were selfishly concerned with their own wants and needs, and their appetites had grown insatiable. They lived for pleasures. They had no concern for the people they were supposed to serve. It's interesting, Ezekiel 34, verse 2 says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the pastors, the religious, the religious leaders of Israel, prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Verse 12, Come ye, say they, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day, and much more abundant. Number two, Israel's religious leaders had become drunks. Those who should have been leading Israel spiritually were more concerned about having a good time and getting drunk. Their lives had become a series of looking for their next day of drunkenness. Some of you have known people like this. Their lives are consumed with alcohol, and they live to wake up in the morning to have more alcohol. Verse 57, or, uh, chapter 57, verse 1. The righteous perish, and no man layeth it to heart, and merciful men are taken away, None, considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. Letter B, Israel had grown callous to the deaths of the righteous. God describes a pitiful scene here with no concern being experienced over the death of righteous men. They had become so callous to anything good and godly, they were unbothered over events that should have stirred them deeply. If it is possible that God, in His mercy, removed the righteous prematurely before the fierce judgment actually fell, perhaps He took them to heaven to escape the horrors about to be unleashed on the nation. Micah 7 and verse 2, The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net. Verse 2, he shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Letter C, God blesses the righteous with his peace. 
God faithfully rewards those who are righteous. Regardless of the circumstances around them, there is a blessed peace awaiting the righteous, both in this life and in the next. Psalm 58, 11, So that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. Verse 3, But draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer, and the whore. Letter D. This is describing the cursed family of the idolater. The cursed family of the idolater. Here's a solemn warning that those involved in idolatry, whose sins often include those of the occult and fornication, can expect their children to also walk in their wicked ways. If mom and dad are going to be involved in the occult, worshiping demons, in magic, dark arts, well, guess what Junior is going to be involved in, as they say. In John 8, 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Verse 4, Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are, not, are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? I don't want you to demonstrate it, but what's it mean to draw out the tongue? Can you imagine being in a class of kindergartners? Do you think they would know what it means to draw out the tongue? Well, sure. They've probably done it to their teacher that morning. <laughs> That's what is being talked about here. Um, letter E, the wicked Israelites were mocking the righteous among them. The wicked mocked those who were righteous. They spoke derisively and shamed them with childish tactics, like sticking up their tongue at them. They were children of transgression, or wicked apostate rebels, whose spiritual eyes had been blinded. They had chosen to live their lives chasing a lie. And what was that lie? Idolatry. 2 Peter 2.13 And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Verse 5. Inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. Letter F. Israel had gotten so wicked, so perverted, they were addicted to its sensual idolatry. Israel was addicted to its sensual idolatry. The, uh, the actual wording here in the original language is quite graphic. And it describes perversion associated with idolatry. They were stimulated promiscuously as they gave themselves in worship of their idols. Baal worship 
included many forms of sensuality and prostitution. It's hard to even comprehend. But in their temples, on the steps going up to the temples of the false gods, they would often have places for fornication as part of their worship of the false gods. Their attraction to their idols became so great, many became willing to sacrifice their own children to gods, such as Molech, in demonic ceremonies. And I've oftentimes had a hard time comprehending how that could be. How could somebody get so messed up in their brain that they were willing to sacrifice their children? Until, until I had some exposure around addicts. Once I had some exposure around addicts, I began to understand that all logic goes out. It's, no, it's not part. Logic is not part of their thinking process. That's why an addict will break into his own relative's home, his mother, and steal her blind. A sick mother, one who has to have medications. They'll get so horribly perverted in their minds, they'll steal the medications and sell them just for the next high. They, 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 they blank out. They, they don't comprehend the wickedness of what they're doing. And so what you have here are the Israelites who have become addicted to this kind of idolatry that includes sensual stimulation that becomes a, an addiction for them so great that, and they sink so low. They offer their children in sacrifices to these false gods. Verse 6, Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering. Thou hast offered a meat offering. Should I receive comfort in these? Number one, their idolatry included drink and meat offerings. Part of their idol worship included pouring out drink offerings into the waters around them, like the river that poured out is all part of their, 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 uh, their ceremonies. They were symbolically polluting the physical streams to reflect their spiritual depravity. Similarly, they would offer meat offerings in homage to their favorite idols. They fooled themselves. They deceived themselves into thinking that God was somehow honored by these wicked offerings. You see, they got so perverted in their minds, they got to where they thought they were pleasing God in what they were doing. Ezekiel 20, verse 39, As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, Go ye, serve ye every one his idols. And hereafter also, if ye will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. Verse 7, Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed. Even thither wentest thou up to offer sacrifice. Number two, idol worship even reached the mountain peaks. Going to the mountains of Tibet to find a person's self is not new. <laughs> they, uh, they did this. They went to the mountain peaks way back in Isaiah's day. There were those whose idol worship experience was insufficient causing them to try other avenues, like scaling the tallest mountains to worship. 
Israel had become saturated in idolatry. The mountain peaks became the last areas untouched by their perversions. They were excited to be the ones to pollute the last vestiges of otherwise holy land. Verse 8. Behind the doors also and the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance. For thou hast discovered thyself to another, to another than me, and art gone up. Thou hast enlarged thy bed, and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed, where thou sawest it. Number three. Judah had been unfaithful to her spiritual husband. Of course, this is talking about Jehovah. Like an unfaithful wife, Judah had given herself to other gods. They had entered into covenants with their gods. There were only intended for their true God. God was jealous and rightfully angered by her adulterous ways. Verse 9. And thou wentest to the king with ointment, and didst increase thy perfumes, and didst send thy messengers far off, and didst debase thyself even unto hell. Number four, Jehovah tried to discover other gods to worship. So Molech, Ashtoreth, Bel, they were insufficient. They had lost the newness. Give us a new god. Described as a harlot preparing herself with perfume, Judah apparently tried to allure other gods to come into their spiritual harem. They had become so perverse and dead spiritually, they sought more and more ways to degrade themselves in their idolatry. God described their true condition as they debased themselves even unto hell, he said. Verse 10, Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, yet saidst thou not, there is no hope. Thou, thou hast found the life of thine hand, therefore... Thou wast not grieved. Number five. Idolatry had wearied Judah, but they had become adamant in their ways. The incessant chasing of idols had wearied Judah. They were worn out. Yet there was no repentance in their behavior. There was no loss of hope that her insatiable desires would eventually be fulfilled as they gave themselves to their false gods. They were so determined in their idolatrous ways, they were committed to make a life of it, and therefore resolved to not be grieved by their disappointments. Jeremiah 5.3, O Lord, are not thine eyes upon the truth? Thou hast stricken them, but they're not grieved. Thou hast consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than a rock. They have refused to return. Verse 11. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared, that thou hast lied, and hast not remembered me, nor laid it to thy heart? Have not I held my peace, even of old, and thou fearest me not? Number 6. Judah had grown self-assured in her idolatry, because God had withheld his judgment. They had been getting by with it, so it must be okay. 
they had responded out of fear. However, God asked them who they had feared, since obviously it wasn't God. Their lives were being given to idols with no fear or concern for God. God had not as yet brought judgment upon them for their idolatry, so they had wrongly assumed he didn't care. All that was about to change. In Psalm 50 and verse 21, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee, and set them in order before thine eyes. Verse 12, I will declare thy righteousness and thy works, for they shall not profit thee. Letter G, God said Judah had no righteousness to mention. It seems like a, a tongue-in-cheek comment. God told Judah that he would soon list all their righteousness and good works. Problem is, they didn't have any. All their works would go up in smoke, leaving them no profit. Isaiah 66, 4, I will also choose their delusions and, bring, and will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear. But they did evil before mine eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. Verse 13. When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee, but the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them, but he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Letter H, a stark contrast of two endings. God contrasted the diverse outcomes of Judah's confidence in her gods versus the righteous whose trust was in God. Like the chaff of the wheat, Judah's help would vanish, leaving them vulnerable and unprotected. But those trusting in Jehovah would find their inheritance in Him. Roman numeral 3. God directs the attention now to the millennium. Hallelujah. It was getting dismal in those verses. Verse 14, and shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. With a look to the future reward awaiting the righteous Jews in the millennium, God commands to clear the way for my returning people. The phrase, cast ye up, refers to making a highway, one that will be cleared for the mass return in that day. Isaiah 62.10, go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Verse 15, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and lofty, high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Letter A, our great God will reward the contrite and humble in spirit. God here is described as the high and lofty one inhabiting eternity, whose name is holy. It is that God, our God, who reveals 
who will be with him in the future. It will be those whom he will revive and exalt, those who are contrite and humble. God hates pride, but he elevates the humble. Verse 16, For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be wroth, for the spirit should fail before me, and the souls which I have made. Letter B. God told Judah his judgment would not last forever. He told them he would not strive with his people forever, nor would he be angry indefinitely. Though the spirit of Judah would fail because of judgment, God's judgment would not last forever. Lamentations 3, 33 and 34, For he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth. Bullet point underneath that. God chastened Judah, but they ignored it and continued in their sin. Verse 17, For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth, and smote him. I hid me, and was wroth, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. Judah's covetousness had grieved God's heart. My covetousness grieves God's heart. He brought judgments against them, yet they continued in their idolatrous ways. He then went silent to them, allowing them to wallow in their sin, which they did wholeheartedly. Verse 18, I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. Letter C, God dramatically looks to the day of his blessed mercy like the gust of a fresh breeze, God dramatically looks to his blessed mercy. Though Judah had become swallowed up in its wicked idolatry, there would come a day in which the Lord would redeem her and receive her again as his bride. And of course, that's a look to the millennium. Verse 19, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near saith the Lord, and I will heal him. Letter D, redeemed Judah will praise their God. From the lips of redeemed Judah will flow praises to their God. His bountiful mercy in that day will cause them to shower him with thanksgiving. For those who choose to put their trust in him, he will give us blessed peace and he will heal them. Hosea 14, 2, take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips, or the offerings of our lips. And then lastly, Roman number four, the hopelessness of the wicked. The hopelessness of the wicked. Verse 20, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Letter A, the wicked will remain in their trouble and turmoil. Contrary to God's response to the penitent and contrite over their sins, God will continue to trouble those who remain unrepentant. They will pursue all the godless world has to offer, but never 
will they find peace or rest. They're likened to the wind-tossed waves of the ocean, never finding rest. And verse 21, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Letter B, the hopeless life of the wicked, never finding peace. God sums the life of the wicked apart from God. They are incapable of finding peace. The world is full of peace seekers, but without God, their search will always come up empty. Isaiah 48, 22, there is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. A couple of powerful chapters here. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for these, uh, these, these two chapters. Thank you for your gracious, merciful look to the millennium and how you will once again receive Judah to yourself. Lord, it grieves us to have to read through these verses of judgment and how foolish and wicked your people were then and how wicked and foolish they can be today. I pray, Lord, that you might stir us today Stir us to give us, to give you our hearts completely and unreservedly. To be humble, contrite in our spirits before you. And Lord, I thank you for what you have prepared for us in the future. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.